I'm feeling anxious. I've brought it on myself. Of course. Let's get going. Just when I have all the answers, all the questions change. One day the world looks so normal, next it looks so strange. Yes, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It's me talking to me. Me talking to me. That's it. It's me talking to me. I I know if it were just really me talking to me, then I would be talking differently, or I'd maybe just be writing this down, or I would, uh, I don't know, I I wouldn't be sitting in front of a pop filter on a professional microphone with a uh, an app that's intended for doing professional things or at least for doing things I, if, if, if it were just for me I wouldn't be doing this in this exact same way I even feel my voice is different let's see let's see let me try to simulate that what what if I were just talking to myself um what would I do? Let me see. Would it be different? Let's can I let me let's see if, see if I can do this. It's an acting challenge. I went to see Rich Scheidner. I don't. It's it's the same. It's kind of the same. And here, here's what's weird. <laughs> I boy, I bailed on that challenge fast, didn't I? It's all kind of the same. I mean, talking to myself, talking to other people. Um, uh, there's situational selves. I don't know. I don't know what I'm getting at. Just trying to find my footing here or my seating. My feet are implanted on the floor. At least the balls of my feet are planted on the floor. I'm sitting on a chair. I'm in my daughter's room that is ostensibly, ostensibly, how's that for a word, huh? It's my room when she's away, but I try to leave as much of her stuff undisturbed as I can so that when she comes here, she has a familiar place to stay. That's hers. I guess that's neither here nor there, but I am here as always. I'm here, and it's now. That's That's been something that I've been struggling with and maybe that's part of the problem, just the struggle with here and now is a lifelong struggle. You know, we spend, we, and I'll bring you into this, whoever you might be, even if you're a future me. We spend a lot of time outside of the present moment thinking about what's happened to us, you know, rifling through our memories or planning for the future. And that's fine, because, you know, the thing about living just totally in the moment, uh, that's that's really, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that that's not a totally reasonable thing to do. I mean, really, if you were just like totally in the moment, you had no recollection of the past and no idea about the future, that, that totally changes things. In fact, from what I understand or, or imagine or... That's that would be that's like Alzheimer's, I I guess. That's that's not not something 
I would imagine many of us aspire to. There's certain conditions, aside from Alzheimer's, I guess, where people have brain damage and they can't remember things or they don't have a concept of the future or they lose a sense of identity. Hmm. Now, you see, it's things like that that I ponder that I, I've actually come to to value more than stuff like cultural references, pop culture, and that kind of thing, or politics. Oh, my God. No, I'm not going to talk about it. Aside from that, skimming the, skimming the surface, fleeting reference to politics in general, I just... Uh, let's get back. Anxiety. I, I mentioned over the music that I'm anxious. And it's self-imposed. But then isn't, isn't it always? I mean, we impose feelings upon ourselves. Maybe you can argue that. Maybe, But I, 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 I've come to the point where I have concluded that so many things like that are self-imposed. The present case in point is, uh, I know the source of my anxiety. Maybe if we don't know the source of our anxiety, then it, it doesn't feel self-imposed because, because we we just go, oh my god, I feel anxious and don't know how to get rid of it. But there's, but you know, like right now, I know the source of my anxiety, and if I change the source of that anxiety, I could easily just let go of it. The source being, I'm considering after another number of months have gone by, and I could look at my calendar and find out, but I believe it's been five or six months, again, that I, where I have not gone on stage. And I've gone longer than that. I've gone years without performing. I mean, not counting this kind of stuff, because even though this, you know, talking, uh, knowing that I'm going to be uploading this and putting it out for the world, <laughs> The potential, at least, the potential of a world audience. It changes things a little bit, but it's not the same. It's not the same as a live performance. It's just not the same, and I like that buzz. But here's the, here's the, here's the thing I've uh, realized about that is, oh, I, as much as I love performing, you know what I like more? My couch. These days, anyway. There were times... There have been times, those times come and go, where I've been compelled. Compelled. It's a compulsion. I've been compelled to perform. Whatever that stage might be, whether it's stand-up comedy, you know, at the comedy store, or other various and sundry places who allow for comedians to get up and talk. Whether it's that or music, doing the singer-songwriter thing, grabbing my guitar and going to a coffee house. I don't, do they even do that anymore? I'm sure somebody does, but it was actually, that's been a thing off and on for decades, right? I mean, I know the most recent one uh, time that I did it was back in the late 90s. Late 90s, early 2000s, pretty much late 90s, it was more of a thing as far as I know. Even though if I looked into it now, I could find out if it's still a thing. But point being, there's always stages. I've also done a little bit of theater. But then that getting back to my couch, which is where I will be 
after I'm done with this. Thing about theater, I don't know if, if you've ever done any acting. That's that's the that's one of those things that it just requires a lot of commitment, a lot of time. If if there's, it's great. There's camaraderie involved, and there's but there, uh, just the the payoff for the amount of rehearsal, the amount of time that you spend not on your couch. For, you know, a lot of plays, you know, you spend hours and hours and hours, which, you know, rehearsing, which, you know, stretches out for weeks. And then you maybe only do, you know, a handful of shows. And I'm, you know, I'm not talking about Broadway here. I'm talking about community theater, you know, local stuff. I've done a few of those things. And, and while I enjoyed it, I mean, every time I did it, there's all that camaraderie that builds up when you're doing rehearsals together. And then, and then the... The fix, the fix, the live performance fix of, of doing the shows is great. You know, there's nothing like it. But it's a lot of commitment. It's, it's a lot of time. So I haven't totally stopped acting, but the kind of acting I like now these days is the kind of acting where commercials, commercials come to mind as the best example of like the least amount of commitment for the greatest amount of payoff. And I'm not talking necessarily money here. I'm just talking about the, you know, the outcome. Commercials, the casting cycle is short and then the shoots generally are only a day, a portion of a day. There's rare times when commercials shoots are longer than that, but at least the commercials I've done, they've been a day, you know, a few hours, right? And that's great. I mean, that's like, that would be like one theater rehearsal session. And what comes out of it is a commercial. Whereas with theater, oh my God, you spend all the time leaving, you know, getting off your couch and putting on pants and <laughs> going to rehearsal and driving and uh, it just, it's, yeah, not for me. That's, it's more of a lifestyle thing. Whereas, you know, doing commercials, it's like, hey, you get a call in to maybe go on an audition and you go on an audition, spend a few hours of your life doing that. And then if you get the commercial, boom, you spend another few hours and you're done. And it's not the same fix as uh, live performance, but but it's something. I mean, you know, being in front of a camera and crew, I mean, that's, that's almost like live performing. Not, not exactly the same. But it, I guess it's just all about time. And that, that's another thing I, I th- think a lot about because that's, that's that one resource. That's the one resource that's... We, we know, we all know, we have a finite amount of. So I've, I've tended to adopt this philosophy in recent years that uh, I got from uh, Derek Sivers. And he, uh, he founded CD Baby back, he was, like, he was like the first place really that I, I'm aware of, or at least the first... Uh, major place where, where people, where musicians could sell their music online. And uh, Derek became, has become, a, you know, a sought after speaker over the years because he, he just built it from nothing up to being basically the only place for a while that where people, where musicians could sell their music. And he, so he turned nothing into a multi-million dollar business and it was reluctantly that he did it. The way he tells the story is he, he was a musician and he was working 
you know, a working musician, didn't have a day job, and he was touring, and he was in bands. And at some point, he thought, hey, instead of selling CDs out of the trunk of their car or, you know, on a on a little temporary table after gigs. How about, yeah, maybe we could also, we could do that, but we, let's, let's, let's sell them online. And he was surprised to find out that there was no way to do that. So he figured out how to do that. And he, he talks about how, uh, how thrilling it was to finally get to the point where he just had a buy now button on his website. So he got to that point, right? He had, he had the buy now button on his website, and he had no intention of turning that into a business. He was just wanted to sell his, his CDs and his band's CDs. But then word got out to fellow musicians, friends of his, that he was doing that, and said, hey, would you put our music up there? And next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. That's a reference for people of a certain age. Where was I going with that? Oh, Derek Sivers. So that's a little bit of his history. I mean, he was reluctantly, he reluctantly became a businessman, a guy who had a multi-million dollar, about multi-million dollar business. But eventually he got, he got done. He was done with that. He just got tired of it. He didn't like that grind anymore. He found himself, he's like, he had less and less time to be a musician and he was spending so much time managing this, this business. And then I, I read an article that he wrote uh, a number of years after he sold CD Baby or after he sold his shares or he got out of it, whatever. He got out of CD Baby and there's this one, he's been writing these articles and I, I follow him and he, he doesn't write newsletters or articles on a regular basis, but when he does, they're good. And one of them was, hell yes or no, or hell yeah or no, I, it doesn't matter, hell yes or no. And it's a simple idea. It's like if you've got anything, and this is because time is a finite resource, if there's anything in your life, from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, if there's anything in your life where, where choice is involved, where you are choosing whether or not to spend your time on it, and face it, that's the vast majority of, of things in your life that you have a choice. Even when people say, oh, I didn't have a choice. Yeah, you, you have a choice. Oh, my, my boss is making me do these things and I hate my job, but I don't have a choice. Yeah, you do. It might not be easy, but, you know, you got a choice. Get another job. Punch your boss in the face. I mean, I'm not condoning that behavior, but you've got a choice. You can say no. That's one of the most valuable things I've learned over the years at work is you can say no. Better have a good reason for it. You got too many things on your plate. Fine, if you want to, whatever your reason is. I got too many things to do, boss. You know, uh, if you want me to do this thing, you got to take some other things and give those to somebody else. Whatever. There's, there's just, there's a choice. Hell yeah or no. So the simple idea of this article is something that's just stuck with me. And I can't remember how long long ago it was that I read this. It's not been that long ago, though, somewhere in the last few years, although time does fly. It might be several years by now. But that doesn't matter. It's always now. Hell yeah or no. So you're confronted with something, or you not even confronted. You've got a let's say you've got an opportunity or something. Somebody asks you to do something or just or you get the idea you want to do something. 
And then you start questioning yourself, well, is this really worth it? Should I do it or not? You know, there's all kinds of shades of gray you could go after. Like, well, I kind of want to do it. Or, yeah, I want to do it, but, you know, yeah. Or, you know, yeah, I really want to do this, but if there's any but, <laughs> don't do it. it. It can be that simple. It really can. But if you feel the hell yeah, if there's just something you go, oh, man, I cannot wait. Oh, <laughs> man, I can't wait. Hell yeah. Then do it. Then do it. But if you feel anything other than hell yeah, then don't do it. So that brings me to the source of my anxiety and a decision that I will, I'm, I might make before the end of this podcast or maybe, I don't know, maybe it'll come at 1.42 this uh, afternoon when I have my alarm set on my Apple Watch that will tell me that it's time to call into the comedy store for a spot. Right now, I'm not feeling the hell yeah, so I really should just let it go. And In fact, that's the thing about the anxiety. Getting back to my feeling, my belief about anxiety, in fact, I'm feeling it right now, even as I start thinking about, you know what, I'm not going. Okay, let me do this. You know what? Okay, I've decided. I'm not going to call in for a spot today. There. <laughs> that was a test. Yeah, the anxiety went. The anxiety went away. Now, that's not necessarily meaning that I've made my decision. Maybe, you know, anxiety isn't always bad. Sometimes anxiety, it's, it's a, could be framed as excitement. It's just a matter of interpretation, right? Although we tend to word it when I say anxiety, it's, it's like a negative feeling. That's, that's, part, that's not hell yeah. I don't think anxiety and hell yeah go together. If I were feeling excited and motivated, like compelled to do it, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't interpret that feeling in my gut as anxiety. I would just say, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of performance, pre-performance buzz, but yeah, I just can't wait. That's different to me anyway. So I guess that's really all that matters is at this point in time anyway, since I'm just interpreting my feelings, my emotions, Hell yeah or no. So if I'm going to practice what I preach, although I hope I'm not preaching, am I preaching? That's another sub thing subject to interpretation, right? Depends on how you uh, are taking it. I'm really not telling you what to do. I'm not. Even if you're just future me, I'm just, I'm just talking. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll listen to this and go, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Thanks for the reminder. Hell yeah or no. Maybe this talking right here, maybe the fact that I I also uh, decided to get off the couch or at least not head right down to the couch after waking up, um, maybe this will get it out of my system and I won't feel like performing, even though this is not the same. Another part of me thinks, hey, life is short. I do have finite time. And I'm 56. Not getting any younger. <laughs> isn't that right? Isn't that, what they, isn't that what they say? You're not you're not getting any younger. Because, you know, if you were, that should make the news. It's like Benjamin Button, I guess. Or maybe in my case, it wouldn't be Benjamin Button. It would just be, oh, I don't know what it would be. What happens if you start young, get old, and then start getting young again? 
It's a different story arc, isn't it? But no, I'm not getting any younger. What would be my reason or reasons for going to perform today? Why am I, uh, if not compelled, at least, <laughs> like just thinking about it, I'm entertaining the thought. Why am I entertaining the thought today as opposed to the numerous weeks that have passed since the last time I entertained the thought? It's because I went to see a show last night. I went to see Rich Scheidner. If you don't know who he is, Google it. That's like the answer for everything these days. No, I don't want to have a conversation. I don't want to tell you anything. I don't want to actually talk to you. Just Google it. Google it. Okay, let me break with that modern... with that modern-day refrain and actually tell you a little bit something about him. Although, if you want to Google him, it's Rich, R-I-T-C-H, Scheidner, S-H-Y-D-N-E-R. Rich Scheidner. He was a headlining comedian. Still is. But he was, when I started doing comedy back in 1986, yeah, I started doing comedy 30 years ago. Unfortunately, I quit 25 years ago. I've been dipping my toes in and out of the water ever since. But a point about Rich Scheidner is when I started in 1986, he was already, he was a guy who had been doing it for a while. He was already a guy who was, you know, had been on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's the real Tonight Show. For those of you keeping score, <laughs> anybody who doesn't know the history of the Tonight Show, you 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 won't know what I'm talking about. But uh, I imagine you know most of people, most peoples, even without googling it, might remember or at least have read in their history books about a guy named Johnny Carson. Oh my God, it's already been, let's see, 92, 24, it's been 24 years since Johnny Carson stopped doing The Tonight Show. Wow. Anyway, Rich Scheidner was a guy who, when I started, he was already a seasoned pro, a road warrior. I didn't meet him. I met a lot of people back then, but I, I didn't meet him. I met a lot of people. <laughs> like We all meet people. But I mean, I, I met a lot of famous or soon-to-be-famous comedians back then. He was not one of them, but I knew of him. And last night I went to see him perform. Now, the thing about Rich Scheidner is he took a break for a decade, give or take. It was kind of poetic, wasn't it? But he did. He took a a break for uh, 10 years, and he, and then he's something back in the 2000s got him going again, and now he's he's performing steadily again. But he did something last night that uh, that triggered triggered the juices flowing in me. I guess just in general, even when I go to to see a show, I I tend to get the juices flowing again because oh, it's just the familiarity of it. Even as an audience member, I can just feel it. I can just, I can, oh man, just being, I can flip it 180 degrees and just go, oh man, I want to be up there. 
So that's the feeling I got last night. Even though I can go months or years at a time without going on stage, it just it just oh, sometimes it just comes back and and being in the arena again, or at least in the audience of the arena again. It just yeah, it got me. Oh, I want to do that. Still not compelled though, because then then the thoughts start coming back to me. Oh my God, I got to put on pants. You know the usual. I gotta get off my couch. I gotta drive. How much gas do I have? You probably have to get some gas. Oh. That's not exactly hell yeah, <laughs> is it? But I'm still entertaining the, th- the thought. I'm still entertaining the thought because I, you know, I haven't come right out and said no, and I'm feeling the anxiety building up again. Hmm. Yeah, no, I was going to make a decision. I'm not going to. Here's the here's what uh, Rich did that made me think, oh, here's something I could talk about. Because one of the things that even when I entertain the thought, or I just I have the, even in the last several months since the last time I went up to the store, I might not have seriously, uh, seriously thought about calling in, but I would just have a, a passing thought throughout the week about maybe giving a call for an open mic spot on a Sunday. And then one of the prevailing reasons I haven't done it is I just really have nothing to say. But when has that stopped me before, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be. I don't have to get up on stage and change the world. You know, whatever it is, whatever it's uh, music or acting or comedy, I don't have to change the world in order to do it or justify doing it. I could just do it. The uh, probable relative handful of people in the audience that aren't comedians, you know, it's, it's just a, such a small amount of people on these open mic nights at the comedy store these days. I mean, ba- back in the day when I first started doing it during the comedy boom, I mean, we had just, we'd get packed houses even on open mic nights. But it's, it's not, it doesn't tend to be that way now. So there's, you know, a small audience. It's not like I'm going to be seen. (laughs) That old yarn, that old trope, whatever. It's not like it would be for a a reason career-wise. It would just be because I feel like performing. And I want to get a little bit of a of that intensity of the surrealism or whatever it is, the, the really being in the moment. You want to talk about being in the moment. I mean, if you've never been on stage, uh, but there's just nothing like it. And even if, I imagine everybody has that kind of experience, even if you haven't been on stage uh, as a professional entertainer or even an amateur one, you have experiences like that, you know, maybe played sports or uh, have to do a presentation at work. I mean, there's, there's different levels of heightened, heightened, um, what do you call it? Not heightened reality, but maybe calling it surreal is weird because maybe it's so real. It's just, it's heightened. And there's just something different about it. And that's what I'm looking for occasionally anyway. But do I need it? Huh. I guess, no, I, I don't. 
I'm pausing to feel that that anxiety again drifting away as I just think, you know what, maybe I'll just maybe I'll just nestle in again. Just take the day off. Aside from this, I'm, perfor- I'm performing somewhat by doing this, but not really. Maybe I'll just take the day off. Have I made my decision? No, because I'm a wishy-washy motherfucker. Motherfucker. Oh, is that the first? Is it? Did it take me 28 minutes and 31 seconds to use my first profanity? and make that explicit tag in my podcast uh, actually relevant? I think so. Will I go or not? I don't know. I don't know. This is, is this like the most pressing thing ever? No, of course not. That's the beauty of it. I mean, it's not a big deal. It's just that Rich Scheidner... Ah, that was uh, something I was going to say, is what he did, because the thing about not having something to talk about or not having anything to say, there's just nothing really going on in my life that's, you know, the, the, a, lot, a lot of time, a lot of times when, when you're doing jokes or writing a song, some of the best stuff comes out of things going on in your life that are pissing you off, right? Like, you know, trouble and the reason that a lot of comedians end up talking about, you know, relationships is for one thing, it's something we can all relate to or most of us. But then another reason is because it's a source of anxiety and and conflict. And that's the thing about stories, right? I mean, the most interesting stories, if not all stories, have some kind of conflict in them. So luckily for me, I don't have much, if any, of that these days. I'm enjoying my job. I don't want to rub this in if you're having rough times, whoever you are. But believe me, I've paid my dues. 56 years, man, I've had, I've had some times where I was not feeling like this, where I was not feeling good, goodly. So is that part of the reason why I'm not compelled to go on stage? I don't know, because I, 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 I don't know, maybe, because I felt like I didn't have anything to say, but then they go, you know, but there's always stories to tell. And what Rich Shiner did last night that I, I don't recall seeing any comic who really did this or this much of a chunk of his act just talking about stuff, just talking about being a comedian. I mean, because he's been doing stand-up since, uh, since the mid to late 70s, right? So, is he counting on my fingers? 80, 90, it's the 2000s that messed me up. Look, I got a math degree and I'm having trouble with that, so I imagine you feel the same way, right? 80, 90, 2000, 2010, 40. So he's been doing stand-up for 40 some odd years. 40-ish years. And he's got stories, you know, he, he dropped some names, which is, you know, because because he was, you know, with the, he's dropped names because those are the people that he he knew. Like, you were talking about Rodney Dangerfield and seeing Rodney Dangerfield's balls, which I've come to find out is a, is like an obligatory or, you know, like the compulsories, like, like when you do gymnastics and there's the compulsories. Or what am I thinking? Figure skating. Anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's the it's like when you're when you're telling this story about Rodney Dangerfield, apparently everybody who's ever met Rodney Dangerfield off stage has seen his balls. Because I've Rich when Rich Scheidner told a story last night about about getting to hang out with Rodney Dangerfield and he you know, he said that, you know, when Rodney was on stage he had the suit and the tie. The off stage he just would wear a robe, nothing underneath it, and he wouldn't tie the robe. So, you know, hello, I'm Rodney. <laughs> so Rich told a story about uh, doing cocaine with Rodney Dangerfield, and there was a they were doing cocaine off of a a glass table, and and Rich said that every time he would go down go down there to to do another line, he looking through the glass table would see Rodney Dangerfield's balls. <laughs> and that's when he learned that there's no such thing as free cocaine. <laughs> so that was the, pri- the price he paid was looking at Rodney Dangerfield's balls every time he snorted a line. Now, Rich has been clean and sober for 30-ish years, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if seeing Rodney's balls had anything to do with him quitting. But that was a story, and I've so there was that. And then he told some other stories and a little bit of name-dropping. But name-dropping wasn't the point, just that those happened to be the people that he was rubbing elbows with or hanging out with, you know, back in the day. So it got me to thinking, it's like, well, maybe I don't have anything particular, particularly interesting or conflict-based or anything or anything I need to resolve, any therapy I need to work through on stage in my current life. So, I, maybe, you know, I've been d- doing stand-up off and on, as I said, for 30-ish years, or even if I just focus on the five years where, where I, the period of time back in the late 80s to early 90s where I quit my day job as a software engineer to go do stand-up. I can just focus on those times because I met people then. Some famous, as I mentioned earlier, famous or soon-to-be-famous people. And you would think after, you know, if five years of intense, you know, immersion in the stand-up, five or six years in the stand-up comedy, that I'd, I'd have some stories to tell, right? You, you would think. One bit of uh, self-awareness, one thing, <laughs> and you might have gathered this if you're still listening to this, Yeah. But actually, you must be still listening to this because it'd be silly. Anybody who stopped listening to this, I'm I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> not that I'm, well, I'm not talking to you anymore. I don't mean it that way. What I mean is more and uh, more of an existential thing. Is like a going. Well, if you're still listening to this, well, of course you're still listening to this because you're hearing this. And anybody who's not listening to this, well, those are wasted words, right? I do digress. That's what I do. And that's kind of my point. Like, for instance, if I just got up and did this on stage, this would not fly in a comedy club. There's expectations. This could fly in just some some spoken word thing. Or like what I'm doing now. It's a podcast. It's a different form. doesn't necessarily have to have punchlines. Comedy tends to, you know, thrive on that kind of thing. And if not jokey joke punchlines, at least something funny happening. Raising an eyebrow, making a silly face, whatever. Or actually even saying something funny. 
So I started thinking, one of my weaknesses, though, is at least this, my self-impression, uh, my impression of myself. Hey, here's my impression of myself. Listen. Hi, I'm Joe. <laughs> my self-assessment. <laughs> I amuse myself sometimes. Look, if I can't amuse myself, how am I going to amuse other people, right? One of my self-assessments, I'll get to it. Is that I'm not, I don't know, I, I feel I can talk, obviously. I've been talking for a long time, but here, you, 36 minutes, 34 seconds. But is this really, a, is this a story? Is this, there might be little stories in here, but I, I, I'm not really, I don't look at myself as much of a rock on tour. That's a fancy word for storyteller, in case you didn't know. And I don't mean to insult your intelligence if you did know. I don't. I just don't. I, I, you know, when I hear really good storytellers, and I, I got to be honest with myself, I don't got to be, but I try to be, and I, and I say, you know, I'm just not that. I, I, it's amazing how few stories I have to tell, really. Considering the things I've done. I may not have led the most amazing, interesting life in the world, but I've done some things, you know, that other people haven't done. I, when I was in college, I, I was on a national championship football team. I had teammates that went on to the NFL. Some teammates that went on to the NFL Hall of Fame. You'd think I might have some stories to tell, right? <laughs> you would think. Same thing with stand-up. I mean, I I met Jim Carrey before he was famous. And I, I remembered meeting him back then before he was famous because the guy was, he was amazing. He was fucking brilliant. He was one of the few comics that I would watch every time he went up on stage. Because you know, a lot of times the comics would come down from Hollywood uh, to perform, you know, to headline at the La Jolla Comedy Store where I lived. And, you know, if you've seen them once, that's enough because you watch their act again and it's pretty much word for word. But not Jim Carrey, man. He was one of those guys, I said one of those guys, he was on the top of the mountain of guys that's like, oh my God, you never know what's going to happen. The guy was just, not only did he have that energy and, this, and the charisma and the talent and, and, and just, it was always different. It was entertaining as shit, man. Not that shit is all that entertaining, but it, so. But that's and then okay. And I'll I'll finish the thought though. Is that my interaction with Jim Carrey was wow on stage? It was just this just energetic, great, talented guy, and I was not surprised. You know, a couple that at some point during the time I was at the comedy store that he became famous. He he got on in living color, and then the rest is history. It was not surprising at all. But off stage, he was totally different. He was just totally shy, and I, you know, I don't think he was. I, I never looked at it as being stuck up. Sometimes people will misinterpret somebody's shyness or being quiet as being arrogant or stuck up. I didn't look at it that way. Just the my impression of him was that he was just very off stage, just very was shy. And you know, I remember him like just asking for a glass of water when I was behind the bar and just being very polite and shy and timid. 
But that's it. That's like the extent of my Jim Carrey story. Not very compelling, is it? I mean, it might be it might be interesting just as an anecdote to go, yeah, the guy on stage was just this amazing, energetic guy, but off stage he was shy. Okay, so as an anecdote, okay, yeah. But as a story to tell on stage at the comedy store, then probably not. So what else? Then I so then so then this morning, as I was thinking more about Rich and the fact that he, and the stories that he was telling, and they they actually were not just little anecdotes, not unfunny anecdotes. They were funny stories. I just realized, oh my God, I have a couple, but wow, it's kind of sad. <laughs> really, it is that, and the different things that I've done. Oh, the places I've been and the things I've seen. And even people, you know, it's not even that you have to have had brushes with fame or or any kind of excellence in the world to be able to tell a good story. I mean, there's plenty of people who just live so-called normal, mundane lives and are great storytellers. Knock my socks off, I'll tell you. <laughs> but I'm sure somewhere, I mean, I started jotting some notes today and I thought, I mean, maybe... Maybe if I do call for a spot today or sometime in the near or distant future, that's what I can do. I can follow follow the lead of Rich Scheidner and just call my history and come up with some stories. Just, you know, be self-referential. Talk about some brushes with fame or even not the famous stuff, the hell gigs. Those are always the, those are, those are the ones. Those are the ones that people want to hear, those hell gigs. In fact, I have a book that Rich Scheidner compiled along with another comedian, uh, Mark Schiff. And the book is called I Killed. And it's full of stories. <laughs> stories from comedians, basically hell gigs. It's just, even though it's ironically called I Killed, it's just, it's it's, you know, every comedian has stories about just hell, they're hell gigs. What, what else are you going to say? You know, you do stand up long enough or even just you do stand up once and you're going to have stories to tell about when you, when you bombed or when you were in a bad situation. Just like, in fact, here's, here's mine. Here's one of mine. My, my, the one that always pops up at the top of my mind when I think about hell gigs is, and, and this was at the point where I, I was not just a, a rookie comic. I mean, I was getting gigs. I was getting paid to do it. And back during the comedy boom, in addition to, you know, le- like legit comedy clubs popping up all over the place, there were also the the offshoot of the comedy boom is that they just started doing comedy everywhere. They being like restaurant owners and just bars and just, just places that, you know, living rooms. I literally did perform in a living room once for a birthday party. That's... Uh, <laughs> uh, that's an example, though, where I really don't... I can't think of any funny way to tell the story other than I just performed in a living room. No microphone, nothing. Just uh, just standing in the middle of a living room with a bunch of people gathered around for this woman's 40th birthday party. And, and the th- it's 40th, I think, something like that. But I remember because the theme, everybody was wearing black and there were tombstones and other death-related things because, oh, she's over the hill. And so I'm supposed to get up there and tell jokes about her. <laughs> It's like, oh my God. Yeah, not so much. Uh, I don't really have so much a funny way to tell this, or at least yet, but that's that's at least one example of a hell gig. But the one 
one that really stands out. And this was uh, when you just think, why, why would they even have comedians in this situation? It was an AIDS benefit. This was in the late 80s where people were, I mean, people are still getting uh, AIDS or, inf- uh, you know, or are HIV positive and there's people still dying of it. But, but, you know, at least there's ways that people are not dying now. Sometimes people could be HIV positive and live. But back then, I mean, it was, it was you know, it was full-blown people dying. Now, this is not the funny part. The part that gets me, it's like, why? Why would you book comedians for an AIDS benefit? Other than, okay, maybe somebody thought, hey, you know what? We'll have this black tie affair. This black tie affair, we'll have a bunch of people in tuxedos and gowns, and, and, and we'll just uh, you know raise money for a good cause, and we'll have some comic relief. Okay, that, that I could see. They had, they had, you know, everybody, there were people that I recognized, local celebrities anyway, like the mayor was there and local news people and, you know, they're all decked out in their tuxedos and stuff. So me and my other couple of comedy friends <laughs> were booked for this gig. And here's what happened. I was the first one up, the first comedian up. I was not the first entertainment, though. What I followed was... um a choir, the gay men's choir, and they sang a song about AIDS, about um, uh, somebody dying of AIDS. And all I remember is that the closing refrain, the beautiful closing harmonic refrain in their song was, Let him die, let him die. And now the comedy of Joe Palin. And I did die. Oh my God. That was... And that's pretty much my story. So there you go. After five years of... Five or six years... I keep saying five or six. The point is, it doesn't matter. Six years. After six years of doing stand-up comedy and then all the years since then, and that's like my hell gig story. The closest I come to having anything funny to say is... Let him die. And I did. That's kind of it. So again, maybe that's kind of interesting, but... (laughs) But analysis aside, that lets you know, kids, that, you know, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, it's not always going to be rosy. Like you didn't know that. Anybody who's done it knows that. Anyway, have I babbled enough? 46 minutes. Could I push for an hour? I don't want to push. Do I need to push? I don't need to push on anything. Have I made that pretty clear that that's kind of become my philosophy recently? It goes against all my upbringing. It goes against being an American, I think, because, you know, I'm, I've, I've, I, this whole thing about that, no, you know, that I was brought up with, that you don't quit. You don't quit. You just keep pushing and you keep pushing and you don't quit. That's bullshit. Quitting gets you to the good stuff. I I heard somebody recently talking about that. I mean, if you you know let people down or quit in the middle of things, that's a bad character trait. But this whole idea that you just have to keep going forever and never quit is is bullshit. I mean, if for one thing, if if that were really the case, then we'd we'd all just be, you know, finger painting. I'm just trying to think of something you do in in kindergarten, right? We would just start 
But even before that, we'd all be shitting in our diapers. Because, you know, you just can't quit. We'd all be breastfeeding. (laughs) You got to quit things in order to get to the next thing. And so right now, I think on that note, I'll quit this. Until next time, whenever next time is, I've been Joe Palin, and I'll continue to be. Bye. <laughs> Just when I have all the answers, all the questions change. One day the world looks so normal, next it looks so strange. Looking over the ocean on a sunny day. I'd like to stay here forever, it would be okay.